You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be dealing with a lot of verses. And uh, if, um, if uh, you're walking in, walk in and get cozy with everyone. You can come up front. It's the scariest thing ever, but there's lots of seats up here. We'll embrace you. Um, while you're walking in or opening up your Bibles, I want to bring your attention to a new Bible reading plan that we're trying to do as a church. And uh, this Bible reading plan, there's lots of different Bible reading plans you could do. This is one that we stole from a sister church. Um, and it's kind of a, it's a thematic Bible reading plan that we want to see all of Scripture. We want to see all of Scripture having this hope, of having this hope that redemption comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And so as we look at this, what you're going to see is you're going to start with creation and then fall. And so if you started this last week, we're covering a text that you read last week. And we want to show how there's all these pointers that point to our hope has always been in Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller, he says there's two ways you can read the Bible. You can read the Bible where it's all about you, or you can read the Bible where it's all about Jesus. And what that means, if when you read the Bible, and like me, the things that pop out to me first are moralistic imperatives, what I must do, which is really, I mean, the Bible has moralistic imperatives for sure. But it's foolish for me to think if I do these things, if I learn these things, if I take notes of these things, then I'll be okay because I'm sinful and wretched and my sin caused the death of God himself. And so I need someone to save me from that. And so those imperatives and the moralistic imperatives, they're important, but they're there to push us to the greater need of a Savior. And it's all the way through the text. We see it. Listen to this other quote by by uh, Tim Keller. He says this. It'll be up on the screen. It says, The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness otherwise you would never be able to overcome. Religion is, if you obey, then you'll be accepted. But the gospel is, If you are absolutely accepted and sure you're accepted, only then will you ever begin to obey. There are two utterly different things. Every page of the Bible shows the difference. And so our prayer is as the Bible reading, as you're talking in your home groups and you have community around you and you see these things, that you read your Bible with a pen or a highlighter and anytime you see something pointing to God saving, God promising, God rescuing, you would stop and you would worship Jesus and you would say thank you because I know who Jesus is because of your grace. And if you're here and you're like, man, it is hard for me to read the Bible. I mean, I read it, and there are thous and therefores and all kinds of words I don't understand. You need a different translation of the Bible. But in that, if you say it is hard, we have the great promise of John 14 that Jesus says, I'm going away to send you the Holy Spirit. He will be your helper, and he will illuminate the things to which I have taught. So he promises you this. If you can read, you can read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit can teach you what it means. And so as we look at this, we're going to try to demonstrate what this looks like as we see death enter mankind. And so we have two chapters of creation, and the two chapters of creation at the beginning of the Bible are kind of the same account told in a different way. We really don't interact that much, and as soon as we start to interact, we get to Genesis chapter 3, and we blow it. 
And the rest of redemptive history up to the point where we find ourselves today is how God is chasing after mankind. And so what's introduced here is we see God Almighty and he creates and he creates man as the pinnacle of his creation. Man turns away from God, says, you don't know what's best. I can't trust you to show me what's best. I'm not for sure if you're good and turns to his own thoughts, turns away from God and we fall into death. And so when we are in this deception of death, we find ourselves, we don't trust God. We live in an environment, you and I live today, if you're a believer, you still have sin and you live in a way that you don't trust God. You see things, I see things, and I see what God says, but I see what I feel or what I think, and in that moment I doubt God's goodness, and I say he probably doesn't want the best for me, so I go after this, so I don't trust God, and it leads to me being mad. I'm frustrated. Things don't work out. I chase after things that I think will make me happy, and they don't come through, and so I'm frustrated and mad, but it goes worse. Because I don't trust God, I worship the wrong things. And when I worship the wrong things, I am worshiping an idol. I am worshiping something that is a tool in the hand of Satan. It can be good or it can be bad. It doesn't matter. It can't stand in the place of God. And so when I start to obey the wrong things, I listen to the wrong things, it leads me to be insecure. Because I obey and I do what those things say. I try to achieve them and it doesn't come through. And so I feel insecure. So I'm mad and I'm insecure. And then I'm found vulnerable because I find these insecurities. And so I do everything I can to cover them. And so all of us, if you've been walking with the Lord for a hundred years, or if you are not walking with the Lord at all, we all walk in with this infection of sin is us in us, and we're all sitting here and we're all mad, insecure, and ashamed. Welcome to Stonegate if it's your first time. But sin infects everything. And so what we see is Man turns his back on God and spits in his face and says, I don't know if I could trust you and trust his own intuition, follows the lies of the serpent and walks away and God comes down and we've made a wreck of this world. I mean, you don't have to look out very far. You don't have to read many headlines. You don't have to come to church to realize we have made a wreck of this world. And so it is ground zero. The attack has happened. And If you were God, you would come out and you would say, I told you so. But God comes and he approaches us and he brings these three questions. Where are you? Who are you listening to? What have you done? And like a good counselor, he's trying to lead us so that we see the truth. You realize that every time God asks us something, it is rhetorical because he knows the answer. And so when he asks us something, he's trying to lead us to see something more beautiful, something more full, where we really are. Now, right now, it's kind of like we're standing before God and God puts his counselor hat on. And if you've ever been in front of a counselor, and and I have, um, I've sat in front of a counselor, and it's your first time, and they start to ask you questions, you get really nervous because you know they're trying to expose something you don't want to be exposed. And so then you all tense. And I'm just going to ask you this just relax which is what a counselor would say, just sit down and relax. What God wants to expose to you will be a beautiful, beautiful gift. And so we start, and the first thing we see is we start in verse 7, 
And so let's look at verse 7 through 10 as we back up. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as God was walking in the garden, the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. He called to the man. Where are you? If you're taking notes, the first question that we're going to deal with is, where are you? In verse 10, Adam answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so we have the first question that God knows exactly where he is because you can't hide from God. I mean, you can't physically hide from God because he sees everything, but you also can't emotionally hide from God because when you try to lie or put on a strong face, when you feel insecure, he sees right through it. You can't lie to God. And so he comes knowing where Adam is, and he says, where are you? And so right here, let's just take a moment. When someone tries to hide in front of you, and you can clearly see them, it looks ridiculous. It looks absolutely ridiculous. It's true for my dog. I have a 100-pound Weimaraner, and what he'll do is sometimes we give him a rawhide bone, and he looks at it, and he puts it in his mouth, and he savors it. And for days, he doesn't even chew it, and he starts to drool, which is a problem when you're a 100-pound Weimaraner, and he starts to drool. And then he realizes that there are all these little kids. I have three children, three and under, and he thinks they're going to steal it, which they will. They will take it and chew on it. And so he takes it. And he looks around the house for a place to hide it. We don't let him take it outside because he will dig a hole and bury it, get insecure about where it is, dig it back up to dig another hole and bury it. And if we don't find it, we will have no grass in our yard. And so he'll take it and he goes to the corner of a room and he looks around kind of suspiciously and he kind of starts to dig around the carpet with his nose. And then he places the bone down and he tries to cover it up. And then he steps back and looks at us. And he looks at the bone, he looks at us. And it's this embarrassing moment where he's like, can you see that? And we're like, yeah, we can see that. <laughs> and so my dog does it. I don't know if that's the fallen nature of my dog, but it's not just my dog. My children do it. We'll play hide and go seek. And this was a couple weeks ago, we play hide and go seek. And so I count and I'm like, go hide. And they run around and, you know, my youngest son, Cruz, he doesn't run around. He doesn't, he doesn't really do anything yet. He is no help to a church plant at all. Um, but my, my three-year-old and two-year-old daughter, they run around and they scream, which doesn't help the hiding process, but they run around and scream. And so I act like I'm counting. I act like I don't hear. Usually I go to a room where they're not. And so I was in Quinn's bedroom, and I go to Liv's bedroom. I knew they weren't in there because I heard them screaming in other parts of the house. And then I come into the living room, and Quinn, my three-year-old, had gotten her umbrella. And it's a VeggieTale umbrella. And she had placed it over her head and sat down in the middle of the room. And she was just looking, and there's a moment because she's holding it. It looks like she's just praying. I hope he doesn't see me. Now, it's worse. The veggie tail umbrella is clear. And so she is sitting there, and I walk in, and I'm just, and Kinsey's laughing, and she's trying not to laugh. And so I, you know, I want to be a respecter of person, as God is a respecter of person. And so I walk in, I'm like, Quinn, where, where are you? And she answers me, I don't know. <laughs> and you need to know, it is not just my dog. It is not just my young children. I hide. Sin will be obvious in my life. 
It is like I am surviving the flames of the fire in my house, and I will come, and I will be around church people, and the question inevitably will come, or I'll be in my community with my home group. How are you? And my first inclination is to hide. It doesn't matter how obvious it is. I feel this from ridiculous things to serious things. And what we find in the church is we have to have a community that asks this question because God comes and asks this question, where are you? Because when you're hiding, you only have an inclination. You only know a small amount about where you are. And it's not until you come out and say, this is where I am. This is where I am. And if your home group is not engaging in such a way that people ask this question, where are you? You are not helping people in this life follow after Jesus. That needs to rest on home group leaders and people in home groups that we have to determine, where are you? And let me tell you, if you are leading any type of community, the best way to get that started is for you to start it. This is where I am. And just lay it out there. And so God comes and he asks us, where are you? And look at this. I want to jump ahead. I want to jump ahead to uh, verse 7. And it, it looks at this, or right in the middle of verse 7, it says this. They real, they're hiding. And they're hiding because they find themselves to be naked. And the question we want to ask is, what is it about this nakedness? What is it about this? And so look at this. It says, they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings. And so they're trying to cover themselves. They found insecurity, vulnerability in their lives. And they said, if people see this, if people see this, they won't love me. If God sees this, they won't love me. And so that's the problem of nakedness. And so we want to look to the curse. And so we're going to jump ahead. Look at verse 14. We'll jump ahead and we'll come back to the other questions. But we need to understand when the curse falls out, it shows us that we are in trouble. And our first response is to hide these things. And so look at verse 14. It says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, so we start cursing. He's going to curse the serpent. He's going to curse man. And he's going to curse woman. And so he says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and all the wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, oftentimes, as modern readers, we look at this and we see that it's a serpent and snake, and we want to know, why a snake? And listen, you could read commentaries, and some of them are going to say it could be because of the Canaanite fertility God, and, and so God allowed Satan to do this, and it was to show that you've got to choose between Yahweh or another God. You could read other commentaries, they're going to say, you know, the ancient Orient, the, the, the snakes were... Uh, a symbol of wisdom, and so the picture is you're going to choose whether God is wise and follow him or whether this world is wise and follow him, or you're going to look at it, and if you read in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you're going to see snakes are always representative of something unclean. And so it's a picture of sin is unclean, and we have a righteous God, and we have to be clean before him. And all of those things could be true, or none of those things could be true. I think it was probably a serpent, because that's how it happened. The most astonishing thing to me is when the snake talked to Eve, she wasn't like all freaked out out about it. That's the most astonishing thing to me. But what happens is we see they start to hear a different voice. And so all of a sudden there's another voice that is rivaling God's voice. This is what separates the direction of your life. There is God's voice and there are other voices. All other voices will pull away from what God says. And so look at, we see this distinction. And so if you're taking notes underneath this, we're going to ask this question, what is my heritage? Look at verse 15. 
Verse 15, man falls, and we have the first picture of the gospel. It comes out right away. And so it's called Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. And so what we see in verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Those are two singular things. And so he looks at the snake and he says, there will be a a rivalry. There will be enemy between you, woman, and between you, snake. Between you, woman, and between you, Satan. There will be enmity between you guys. You guys will be enemies. And right now you're like, well, that makes sense. Girls don't like snakes. It doesn't mean that at all. So keep going. Verse 15, it goes on. And it says, and between your offspring, plural, and, and then it goes, and hers, And so it starts singular, and it says, there will be a war between you, woman, and between you, Satan. And that war will extend from this moment, and there will now be two families. There will be this family of Satan. And we see that over and over. In John 8, 44, Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, who wants to carry out the father's desires. When Jesus says, you belong to Satan, you're just like your daddy. That's a bad thing. And so he starts to see two families. He says there will be a broken offspring, and there will be an offspring that will come from this woman. And so it gets plural, so singular, then it gets plural. Now look on, it goes on, it says, and hers. And then it says this, he, it says singular, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so the first line that we see in Scripture, the first line of the gospel that we says, it says, from Eve there will be a he, and that he will fix all of this problem. And so man falls. God doesn't scramble around and say, what are we going to do? He says, we've got to show man where he is. And so he comes and says, where are you? And the curse starts to come out. But he gives his promise first. He says, this is the promise. There will be a rescuer. And he will come from Eve. And he will set all of this right again. And so the promise comes out, but it tells us, where's my heritage? I'm either in the line of sin or I'm found in the line of Jesus. There's no other place to be. And so the next question that we see, it's going to point in this curse. Are my relationships out of balance? Look at verse 16. It says to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains of childbirth. With with pain you will give birth to children. And he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so the first instituted relationship of humanity was husband and wife. And he says, relationships will be broken. When it says this in verse 16, it says, your desire will be for your husband. If you're a guy and you're reading that, you're like, man, that sounds good. It doesn't mean like she's going to look at you and be like, man, I want you right now. It's not that kind of desire. It says there's an institution of how this family's supposed to work, and God has put the man in charge of the family. And so that means when your family goes awry, God comes to you, and he says, what is wrong with your family? And he says, there will be a natural inclination of rebellion. I don't want to submit to that. He says the most fundamental human relationship will be turned upside down, and it will be hard to be submissive. Now, girls, just let me ask you this. Is this sometimes hard to be submissive to your husband? Don't raise your hand. Don't jab anyone. And so he curses relationships. And so we just want to ask, is this true? Do I find relationships that I work hard and I work hard and I want to make them right and I want them to flourish and I want there to be intimacy and I want to work that it seems like something is working against me? And so we see relationships are out of balance. 
Now look at this in verse 17 through 19. It says to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through pain and toil you eat of all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat from it until you return to the ground. And all of a sudden he says, The circumstances of your life will work against you. And so if you're taking notes, we want to ask this question, do circumstances determine, is there a wrestling match in me that I let the circumstances of my life determine who I am and the direction of my life? And so he says, you used to go and you used to eat from the trees and they produced for you and they worked with you. Now you will go and you will work for it and you will work and you will work and it will fight against you. All the circumstances of your life will have the element of sin and We just stop and I ask you, do you work hard and hard to hold not just relationship and balance, but the circumstances at at work or the circumstances within your family or the circumstances within your church or the circumstances within your home group or the circumstances within the Rotary Club, whatever you do, I don't know what you do, all the circumstances and yet it seems like they cave in around you. It's a part of the curse. And then the final thing we see at the end of 19, it says, He says, you'll you'll return to dirt. He says, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you return. Do you face death with fear or without hope? If you look at those questions, we started off at at the top of it. It was this question, almost this dividing line. Are you in the line of Jesus? Are you trusting and treasuring Jesus? Or are you in the line of humanity? And then these other questions start to pour out. Are my relationships broken? Do circumstances wage against me? And then the final question, when you look at death, does it gut you without hope? And I'm telling you, if you are in Christ, there is hope in death. Death has been defeated and you can walk through it. And it doesn't mean that you look at death with great optimism or you look at death like hopeful. It doesn't mean necessarily that it looks like you can look at death and at the worst of sin where it separates and we see a visible separation that you are no longer living. It becomes the ultimate consummation that you are with God again in his presence. Jesus has turned these things upside down. But the first question is this, where are you? God comes to Adam and he says, where are you? God doesn't need to know where he is. Adam is hiding with a fig leaf on behind a tree. And it's like Quinn hiding under a see-through umbrella. It is ridiculous to God. But he doesn't realize that. He says, all the vulnerabilities and the insecurities and the fears that are in, I need you to see them. I need you to acknowledge them so I can walk you back to me. Will you acknowledge those insecurities and those fears? Where are you? Let's look at the next question. So verse 11, we back up and we go this. It says, and he said, and so God comes, where are you? He says, I was naked, so I hid from you. And look at this. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And this is our second question. Who are you listening to? Who told you that you were naked? And it says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you shall not eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. 
And so we start to shift. It's not my fault. It's her fault. And she's going to say, it's not my fault. It's the snake's fault. And, you know, Satan doesn't talk. He just says, yeah, I, I'm a war against you, God. And so we see that. But look at this. This is the question. He says, who told you you were naked? The, the, the big problem is Adam's always been naked. Now, when I ask this question, what's the problem with nakedness? All of you guys are like, it, look at me. Is it not obvious what the problem with nakedness is? But he's always been naked. And just for a moment, let's stop and just worship how our God thinks. He created paradise, and it was beautiful. I mean, you can picture waterfalls and pristine valleys and trees and lush and good weather. And it had to be good weather because they were naked. You know, it can't be cold. And so it was beautiful. The animals didn't war against you. You didn't have to worry about like a pack of wolves jumping on you. Somehow I think that means all the way down mosquitoes. I don't know if they existed then, but if they did, they didn't bite you. I mean, it didn't say he gave them some repellent and they're like, I can't get West Nile. I mean, that didn't exist. And so he makes this pristine, beautiful place. And then he makes man. And man is kind of coveting around. He's taking care of the garden. And he's working for God. He's got the greatest job. And then all of a sudden he says, this isn't good. We need to make woman. And so he makes her and brings her to man. And man looks at her. And they don't have clothes on. And so man looks at her and he kind of looks again. you know. And so they just look. And they, it's just one man, one woman. Lots of acreage, one garden, and no clothes. I mean, just sit for a moment and just worship how God thinks, you know? And we rebelled against that. And so now there's this problem with, 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 with nakedness. And so look at this. The problem with nakedness first is my sin is exposed to all. If you're taking notes, the problem of that vulnerability is before sin, there was nothing I had to hide. But sin enters and now I hide. And if right now, if you're thinking, oh, I'm pretty open book, you know, people can know about me. Listen, that's another form of hiding. I just want to ask you, let's go back to your first date with your wife. Now, I realize some of you, like, you know, you married your sweetheart, you know, your high school sweetheart. And so your first date with your wife might have been like the eighth grade. But go back. First time you saw your wife or first date with anyone and you're sitting there and you're trying to impress them. You want to look good. So you take them to a great restaurant or you take them to a coffee house if you don't have any money. Or you take them to Sonic Happy Hour if you really don't have any money. And you dress up to look as good as you can. But you don't want to look pretentious so you don't overdo it. You just get as good as you can without looking pretentious like this is natural. And guys, you do everything you can so you smell good. Girls, you just smell good kind of naturally. I don't know how it works out. So you do everything you can so you smell good and you present everything good about you. It's like that first job interview. What's some of your weaknesses? Oh, I just work too hard. I just work too hard. I just, I get wrapped up in my work. I just want to make you happy. I just work too hard. And so they go, well, you know, what are some of your weaknesses? Oh, I just care too much, girl. And I want to care for you, you know? And so you start to lay it out. You put everything good about yourself. And then all of a sudden, what happens? So, you know, 
love happens, you know, all the birds sing in melody, you walk like you're floating on the air, you move around, and then you get engaged, and you walk forward, guy, you just spent all your money on a ring, I mean, you sold your car so you could buy this ring, and so you're frustrated, but you, you don't care, and so you walk through, you go to your pastor for premarital counseling, and you wonder, that didn't really help me much, because you're like, that doesn't apply to me, I'll always love her just like this, and so you go forward, and you walk down an aisle, and you look beautiful, and she looks beautiful, and you realize, you don't realize it then, you realize later, that's as good as you guys ever got to look, and so you have this, and you start this life together, and then the honeymoon happens, and it is beautiful, and it is magical, and you don't really mind all those things, but then the honeymoon ends, and all of a sudden, man, you stink, what's wrong with you? You know, well, I mean, that's what she says to him and, you know, guy smell. All right. And so all of a sudden, all those things that I worked very hard to hide, because I, I, I believe this. Inside your soul, you believe this. If people see all the things that are wrong with me, they could never love me. And so all of a sudden it is exposed. My sin is exposed to all. So I try to hide and I pick, I pick fig leaves. The things I try to cover my sin with are ridiculous. I, I made a horrible mistake as I was looking at this. I was like, I don't know what a fig leaf looks like. I've never seen a fig leaf. And so I just thought, hey, I want to know how big a fig leaf is. They're going to make a funny joke about, you know, hiding fig leaves. And I just typed in fig leaves. Don't type in Google Images fig leaves, all right? Don't do that. And so my sin is exposed to all. But you need to know something about your sin. My sin is personally against God. Look at verse 11. It says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded? You see, we, we sin and we, we hurt each other. We disappoint our kids. We disappoint our parents. We hurt our spouses. We betray our friends. And we start to say, man, I just need to repair that. But you need to see that your sin, although the target looks like it was horizontal, the target is absolutely vertical. Your sin is an assault on the holy God who rules on high. And so we see things like David. You remember the story of David, a king, a man after God's own heart. Every king, ever after David, they either said he was a good king like David or he was a bad king like Rehoboam. A good king like David. You remember? I mean, you think of David, you think of, you know, you think of the, the giant, David and Goliath. You think of that, you think he was you know, musical, he played the harp, and you think, oh, so he was a warrior, a poet, you know, and he was all those things. But usually, one of the first things you think about, Bathsheba. Bathsheba. So even the best of kings were at danger. They steal our wives and orchestrate our death. And when they're confronted, do you remember in Psalms 51 what he says? There's a part where it almost offends you because you think of all the problems that have happened. He sinned against his nation. He didn't go to war with his people. He sins against Bathsheba. I mean, it's arguably rape. I mean, you don't tell the king no. He sees her bathing, and he doesn't believe God's promises that intimacy is only beautiful, and it's only intimacy when it's in marriage. So he takes another man's wife. He looks at God, and he says, I can't trust you. I want pleasure. I'll take what looks good to me. 
And so he goes and he rapes Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, he tries to trick Uriah, bring him back, get him drunk so he sleeps with his wife. But he's a man that has honor in this moment. And so he doesn't do that. So he orchestrates his death and he murders. He murders Uriah. And all of a sudden, Psalms 51, he says this, Against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. You see, he sinned against other people, but he saw his sin was against a holy God, that he looked at that God and said, this looks good to me, you don't know what's right. And I'm telling you right now, all of my sin looks just like that. All of my sin is me seeing what God says, me seeing the goodness of God, and me saying, man, it just doesn't feel right. I know what you say, but yeah, it just doesn't feel right. And me pursuing what I think feels right. And so we see this sin is personal against the holy God. And the third thing we see in verse 12, it says this, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And we see that sin, it breaks. But you need to see that my sin, it's either remorseful or repentant. You see, what we see is my sin exposes. It specifically exposes. My sin is specifically against God. And my sin specifically leads me somewhere. And so when we look at this and we see remorseful repentance, just for a moment, everyone feels bad when they get caught in sin. Feeling bad because you got caught in sin is not the same thing as repentance. And so we'll unfold that in just a minute. But it is not the same thing of repentance. Remorse is nothing more than self-pity. I've been caught and it's uncomfortable. Repentance is recognizing I sinned against God. That God died for me. And I love him. He loves me so I can love him. Why would I want to trample on him anymore? And so we start to see what this unfolds and what this looks like. And so we see this question, who are you listening to? So just like God came to Adam and Eve and asked them, who are you listening to? God asked us today, who are you listening to? What voices in your life have more authority than what God says? And when we first hear that, we think, oh, no voice. And I, I, I just ask you this. Do you grieve more when you think of God being disappointed with your actions? Or do you grieve more when you think of that person? Spouse, boy, girl, father, child, when they are disappointed in your actions. It helps us indicate what voice am I listening to. And then we're going to come to the third question. And so look at verse 13. We'll look at verse 13 and we're going to jump ahead to verse 20. And so the two questions, it starts off just to remember, where are you? Where are you in relationship with God? The second one, who are you listening to? What are the idols in your life that are prominent to stand up? They're most likely to stand up and you're to listen to them. That they might give you security. That they might give you identity. That might give you a sense of hope. And then this final question, what is it that you have done? What have you done? So verse 13, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now jump to verse 20. And so we see all the cursing happens. And so what is it you've done? And we see a specific nature. But look at verse 20. And we're going to come back and explain. But I want to read now. It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And you might just mark that. We're going to come back to that. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said... 
The man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way that is the tree of life. So the third question that comes to us, what is this you have done? What have you done? And you need to remember that repentance has to be specific. If you're taking notes, repentance is specific. I'm not saying that you have to list everything that you've done wrong to be forgiven. I'm saying the act of repentance starts when I get specific with my sin, when I say, this is what I've done, and this is what I've done against you, God. And so what happens is the questions come closer and closer. Where are you? It's kind of this broad statement. Where do you find yourself physically? Where do you find yourself kind of emotionally? Are you close to God? Are you far from God? Are you putting your hope in something else? What am I trying to hide from others and from God? Where am I? And they come closer. So something led you away from God. Something led you to hide. It's these insecurities that we mentioned in the beginning. It's these fears that find you. What voices are you listening to that you are giving more weight to than what God says? Because that leads me to hide. And then this question, what have you done? And so it condemns us. It blocks the way. And so we want to ask this question. And this is a question that indicates, do I really trust what God has done for me? Do I trust the gospel? And so Christians, if you're a Christian here, when you confess sin, do you only confess past sin that you feel like you have a good handle on right now? Does your confession sound like this? Oh, I used to struggle with this, but man, God's been real gracious. I don't struggle with that anymore. I want you to know that is not repentance at all. That is, I found out I was in trouble. I found out I was doing something wrong, and I pulled up my boots, and I strapped on my gloves, and I worked really hard, and I did this, and I did this, and I fixed it. So God and I are good now. That is not repentance. That is religion. That is self-righteousness. That is, I work this out and I'm good. And so if you think back of that awkward time in your home group or that awkward time with your accountability partner, and it was kind of like the moment of, okay, so how's your life? And you say, man, you know, man, it's pretty good. I, I used to really struggle like this. I don't struggle like that anymore. That is not repentance. At best, that is remorse that caused you to work for your own vanity. And so thinking how you confess, or do you confess in generals? Meaning you think, say things like this, man, how, how's God working in your life? And you say things like, oh, you know, man, I'm really having, and this is Stonegate language, and so this is going to hit us all. Man, I'm really struggling looking at some idols, you know, not just surface idols, you know, root idols. And so there's root idols, and I'm struggling to believe the gospel. Now, just for a second, what have I told you? I've told you the condition of all of mankind. I haven't told you of how I struggle at all. It's general. Or this is popular Christian, Christianese. Hey, what are you struggling with? I'm just struggling with pride. I'm, str I'm struggling with a lot of pride. That doesn't really confess anything. I mean, when we confess things in general, we act like they're not big deals, but yet we find that pride is something God opposes. It is a big deal, but you got to go deeper than that. Who do you think you're better than? Is it somebody because they don't have an education or they don't work as hard? Is it somebody because they look different than you? Is it somebody because they voted some other way? Is it someone because their marriage is suffering so you must be okay? 
Who do you think you have an upper hand on? Who do you think among the sons of God, among all of us, who do you think I'm better than that one? Confessing in generals is not repentance. And then we go one more. Confessing in religious language is meaningless. Have you ever been with someone where, man, they are just broken and they're searching their heart and all of a sudden they say something and it's like it creates a straight avenue from their heart, from their soul to their mind, and they just fall apart. All of a sudden they name the sin that they did and all of a sudden it's like everything lines up. That language brings it to a place where they realize where they are. They realize who they've been listening to. They realize what they've done and it just all falls apart. That is God's grace. That is God's grace to you. He knows what you've done. He knows who you've been listening to. He knows where you are. And he is trying to get you to see where you are. He's trying to get to see what you have resurrected, what you have put on top of him that is going to lead you to destruction because it is becoming a tool of Satan that will kill you, that will destroy you, that will steal all joy from you. He's trying to bring you a place where you see that. Who are you listening to? And then he says, what have you done? And so the thing we see about repentance is sin is specific. Sin is specific in what it is, but sin demands death, so only death can cover. Look back at verse 21. The fig leaves didn't cover, so what had to cover? It says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed him. It was pointing to the fact sin demands death, and so to cover them, even temporarily, to cover them physically, something to cover them from the, the repercussions of sin, something to cover them from the elements that now work against them, something to cover them from the mosquitoes that would attack them, something to cover them so, you know, so poison ivy doesn't kill them, something to cover for all this took death. And an animal died, and he was covered with garments of flesh to gratify. And so we see this, and it's painted so clearly in Romans 13, 14, where, he, where Paul says this, put on the righteousness of Jesus. You see, the gospel, what it all points to the good news about Christianity is this. Jesus died on a cross. He paid the penalty. Sin demanded death and he paid it. All of your sin was laid upon him, but it didn't stop there. Then his righteousness can come to you. And so you can be clothed. Because of his death, you can be clothed in righteousness. And so sin is specific, but it also tells us this. God's promise is specific. And so we see that repentance needs to be specific. Sin is specific, but God's promise is specific. God promises that a man will open the door, sin closed. You remember, look back at verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, both singular. So between Satan and woman, there'll be enmity. It says, in between your offspring and her offspring. And so there is going to be enemy between all the life that comes from her. And all life came from her. She was the mother of all of this. And so she started all of this. And so all of life that comes from her, there will be enmity between them and between Satan. And so there's two families. And then it says, in this, in this moment, it says, he 
a man shall bruise, or he, Satan, shall bruise your head, and you, a man, shall bruise his heel. I just messed that all up. It says, he, Jesus, don't want to mix up Satan and Jesus, that's bad, all right. He, Jesus, shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it's just real interesting. So then Adam, in response to the promise, if you jump to verse 20, it says, and Adam named his wife Eve, which means life. And so commentators, they say there could be two things. One is just saying all of life will come from her, meaning all the children of the world. But some commentators say it's a response to the promise that God just gave. Life, the door to life will be opened up through someone who comes from Eve. If you have your Bibles, just real fast, turn to Genesis 4. I just want to show you Genesis 4, uh, verse 1. It's just really interesting and it's in the original language, but we see, uh, so life begins um, in, in chapter 4. And so it says, Adam lay with his wife, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain. Now this is the phrase. Now in the ESV, if you have an ESV Bible, it says, she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now it's not typical. Like when we had Cruz, Cruz is about three months old, and he came out. We knew he was going to be a boy because we couldn't wait. And so we knew. Um, and then he came out, but you can't be for sure. And so you came out, and so you're counting five, 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 one. Okay, so it's a boy. And so you count, like, and it's a boy. I didn't be like, hey, look at the man I got. I mean, he didn't come out like shaving, you know, with a cup of coffee in his hand. He's a boy. And so there's a celebration where it says, I've brought forth a man. But in, in the Hebrew, it's much more literal. It says this. It says, with the help of the Lord, I got the man. And so some commentaries write and they say this. It's possible Eve thought that the full redemption was going to start with the first man that was born. And so she believed in the promise. But listen, that wasn't the man we were looking for. Cain murdered his brother. Cain could not get us back to the tree of life. Remember at the east side of the garden, it says there was an angel, the cherubim, and it said he had a flaming sword. And it says that sword turns in all directions, guarding the way back to life. In the Bible, we see this picture over and over and over. Fire means judgment. Sword means capital crime, means judgment. And so the way back to life, Judgment has to fall on sin. Cain died. Cain was not the promised Messiah. Cain could not go through the flaming sword, could not go through the judgment of God to provide a way that we could get back to the tree of life. Only Jesus can. Now just being still with your heads down, your eyes closed. We come to this moment, and I want to frame, as you think of the Bible reading plan, I want to encourage you, and read the Bible. Read the Bible. As you think of the Bible reading plan, and we're looking at this picture of redemption from creation to fall um, to one day we will be consummated. And we see evidence. Doesn't it give you hope that in the chapter that we turned our backs on God, we see a picture of Jesus. We see a physical picture of covering sin that it took death to cover. Doesn't that give you hope? 
we see a specific promise that there will be a man and he will be different than all other men, but he will come and he will destroy sin, Satan, and death. In the very chapter that we fall is this incredible specific promise and it follows through. And now when we look to life and we're seeking life in everything, when you fall into sin, it is because you are seeking life. But it is just a perverted form of life and it's not true life. And so God, because of his righteousness, he had to separate us from life because sin brought death. And the flaming sword, it says it goes in all directions. And so the picture, if you picture a sword going all directions, it means it cuts off every tangent. There is not a way to get back to life that doesn't involve death. And so you either suffer the penalty of death or Jesus suffers the penalty of death for you. Our only hope is Jesus. And so real fast, those three questions. And here we are, we're going to move and there'll be some music and we'll have time to worship. It would be what question? All those questions are so important for repentance. Where are you? Are you far from God? What are you trying to hide or what are you trying to prop up to shield something that you've discovered about yourself that you don't want people to see? That's a question whether you're saved or whether you're lost. Where are you? Who are you listening to? Who are you allowing to determine your worth and your value? It doesn't matter if it's a relatively good thing It doesn't matter if it's a dark thing. It's something that is not God, so it will lead you astray. For conservative people, usually it's this. It's my my family or it's my work or it's what people think or it's what's known about me. For uh, people who reject God and want to run fast, it's my independence. I don't need the crutch of, of God. So you're allowing something to determine your worth and value. And I want you to know that Satan will use that as a tool to steal from you, to kill you, to destroy you. And then final, repentance comes when we just ask, God, what what is it that I've done? What was I believing when I did it? What were my motives? What have I done? Those are questions we should apply to our Bible reading every day. We are told that we will live by faith. It means that we persevere in this world through repentance. That we tell back to God what he already knows. I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. I need your help. You shouldn't save me. I don't know why you did, but I know you did because historically Jesus died on a cross to reunite me, to make path that now I can have a path back to the tree of life. And the picture of the cross, he was hung on a tree. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.